Have you ever thought about volunteering overseas? How do you get started? What are the risks? Is it worth it? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothills Psychiatry in Boise, Idaho, your host. And with me today is Dr. Nassim Asafi, a second-generation Iranian-American. She's an internist specializing in women's health and global medicine. Most recently, she has been an academic in Seattle, a humanitarian aid worker, and underground salsa dance teacher in Kabul, and an aspiring musician in Havana. She is the author of numerous scientific publications, and Aria is her first novel. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you for having me on your show, Leslie. Oh, Dr. Steffi, you've had such amazing international experience. Tell us how you got started working overseas. You know, it started in 1991 when I graduated from Wellesley College, and I wanted to have a real-world experience in a developing country before starting medical school. So I applied for a bunch of fellowships and ended up getting a Hewlett Fellowship to study the impact of the Islamic Revolution on women's health in Iran. And that's how it started. So even before you went to medical school. That's right. One of the things that that you've seemed very willing to do, which most physicians aren't, is to take time off and just go. How can you do that? How can you cut the leash uh, that attaches us to to our practices and our hospitals? You know, I just make it happen. When I was a medical student and didn't have any money, I would take out maximal loans and save up and pinch my pennies during the year so that I could have these international national experiences. And then I would be up front after medical school and residency with my jobs, telling them that global health work was an important part of who I am. And I would negotiate that into the contract. Mm -hmm. Again, from the beginning. From the very beginning. So tell us about your experiences in Iran. Well, when I first went to Iran, I, like many secular Iranian Americans, assumed that a revolution that was theocratic, conservative, fundamentalist, Islamic, would be really bad for health and women's health and rights in particular. But it turned out I was incredibly wrong. And what happened was that with the Islamic Revolution, suddenly there was an equalization of resources between rural areas and urban areas. So the villages finally got electricity, running water, schools, and clinics. At the same time, there was a major push for literacy and women's education in particular. So now you see that women are the majority of university graduates in Iran. It's quite amazing. It's different from from what we're used to hearing. And finally, Iran really made healthcare a priority and and delivered this healthcare through a community-based universal primary care system and this has had tremendously positive results now the primary care is delivered at the first level by community health workers who are kind of like mid-level physician assistant types and they cut down about 80% of visits to doctors, and they provide all the basics that one might face in a developing country, like diarrhea treatment, bronchitis, cleaning up the water, basic hygiene, family planning, prenatal care, that kind of thing. And through these measures, Iran has a very strong primary care system and women's health system now. So again, much different than the sort of stereotype that most of us have about Iran and the rest of the Middle East. 
That's right. Now, you've also worked in Cuba. I have. And the Cuban example is actually very similar to the Iranian example. It turns out that their revolution was 20 years before that of Iran in 1959. And Fidel Castro made the rural areas a priority. And through equalization of resources, massive literacy campaign, and their primary health care system was delivered through a doctor and a nurse team that live in the area where they serve, and they serve about 150 families. Very, very similar systems of health. Now, is there any way to, to translate these experiences that you've had in places as different as Iran and Cuba into the United States to help our health care system? I think so. People say, well, that works in developing countries, but we have a very different system in the U.S., We don't have anything to learn from them. But in fact, I think we do. The first thing is that we must learn that governments have to prioritize health along with other community-based rights. There's really no excuse for not having a universal health care system. I'm sure most of your listeners know that we're the only industrialized country left that doesn't have universal access to to health care. So that's number one, is that the government has got to make it a priority. Um, Number two is that we have to equalize a lot of the disparities we have in this country. For example, an African-American man in Philly lives 21 years less than an Asian-American woman in California. We have tremendous racial-based disparities as well as poverty-based disparities. So we really need a system that, that gives equal access to all. We're also the only industrialized country without paid maternity leave. We need to value our children and child care better and institute paid maternity leave. And education plays a big role in health. Unfortunately, our Surgeon General post is quite political, and even President Bush's appointee, Richard Carmona, stepped away from the post saying that he was censored on issues like the ineffectiveness of abstinence-only education, or he wasn't allowed to talk about emergency contraception, or even the effects of tobacco. So we need an educational system that talks about health in an honest and transparent way. And finally, I think we have to prevent war, if at all possible. Not only is it incredibly destructive to the recipient country, but it's a huge opportunity cost for us, costing us this Iraq war up to $200 billion a year, which could have easily funded a universal health care system, universal preschool, all the research we wanted and immunizations that we wanted. So I think those four points would really help us. And both Iran and Cuba have demonstrated successful health care systems based on some of these issues. Now, thinking back to my original questions about our listeners who may be thinking about going overseas and volunteering in some health care capacity, in your experience, and you've done this so many times all over the world, what are the risks? What, what's the downside of doing this? The downside of, of volunteering in developing world countries? Yes. Well, the downside is that we are treating our own curiosity and need to serve without looking at the big picture issues. Flying in somewhere and delivering health care for two weeks, a month, or two months isn't really going to change the underlying health system. And it can, in fact, weaken local health systems. So if you're going to volunteer, I would recommend you do it with a long-standing program that will provide health care after you leave. So that's, that's one major issue. The other is 
you might get sick. <laughs> you might be traumatized by, by the depths of poverty and the impact of warfare. But I think overall, the benefits are huge. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you think it's worth it. I do. Now, how do you deal with things like a family and mortgages and cars and all that sort of everyday life stuff that seems problematic if you're going to leave the country and go work abroad? Well, it depends how you do it. If you're doing a short-term volunteer stint of, you know, two weeks to three months, you basically have to continue with your payments domestically and arrange for childcare or bring your kid with you because unless the atmosphere is is very dangerous, I think traveling with children is wonderful and they're very valued the world over. But if you do decide to do healthcare work in a longer term way, you don't need to necessarily suffer financially. And there are organizations that you can work with that would help you pay your loans and put your stuff in storage and allow you to meet your financial needs while you're away. I always advise trying to live as materially simply as you can because we sometimes become the slave of our debt and our lifestyles. And once you get out of debt, it's so incredibly freeing. You can do the things that you want to do. Now, how has your family dealt with you globetrotting? (laughs) They're used to it by now. (laughs) Uh, My parents basically uh, threatened to stop talking to me when I moved to Afghanistan for two years. They were really worried. Every day they were having problems sleeping and depressed, and every every notice of a suicide bomb would would send a terror chill down their spine. But other than Afghanistan, they're really quite supportive of all of my global health work. And until now, I have been doing it as a single woman, but my husband-to-be in the next month will be coming with me. Now, what about, I'm interested in in re-entry. After you do these incredible experiences overseas and you come back to the United States and and work again in our system, what's that transition like for you? You know, it gives you a a big-picture perspective. We spend so much time obsessing over whether one statin is more effective than the other statin, and yet So much of health is not really dependent on medicines, but it is health behaviors. And if you get someone to stop smoking, treat their diabetes, get on any statin, and live a lower-stress life, they're going to be able to live better from their coronary artery disease. We obsess a lot over over very small things in this country. Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself ever impatient with the people of our country who, uh, as patients, don't take responsibility, even though they're provided with tremendous resources, but lack that personal responsibility that you mentioned is so crucial in regard to keeping their health well? You know, I, I don't find myself impatient with it. I tend to work with patients who are poor or non-English speaking or are refugees, and there are so many reasons why people don't follow medical advice. I mean, for one, their lives might not be structured in a way that, let's say, they can get exercise. Maybe they live in a dangerous part of town, or maybe there are no sidewalks, or maybe they're, they're working all the time. And also, I think it's the doctor's responsibility to help forge a trusting relationship with their patient such that the advice they give is trusted and acted upon in a way that makes sense for the patient. So I think this is really one of the biggest challenges of being a doctor is translating the medicalese into language that is going to make sense 
for that patient in the context of his or her life. Makes great sense. So I'd like to thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you for having me, Leslie. We've been discussing global health experience with Dr. Nassim Asafi. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening.